notes uh, was to put it on tape and it played back perfectly. So he had a small miracle there. Anyway, today's a very fascinating shear. And um, I just want to reiterate that simonim versus uh, facial identification. Nothing is like facial identification because no two people in the world look alike. And even identical twins... Um, it can't be a problem halachically for one simple reason. Generally speaking, two identical twins don't get lost at the same time. So even if uh, you'll say, how can you be certain identical twins, we're talking about, uh, uh, to my young students, uh, we're talking about identifying bodies to be matur and aguna. This is what we're coming into. A woman's husband is missing and you find the body and you have to identify it, and we're talking about the modes of identification. So, of course, according to the Mishnah Yavamad, as we said, the best identification is the face, the visage, the nose. We all look different. That's the advantage of Patsuf. The disadvantage is that the face uh, only remains for a little while, 72 hours. After that, Rigamortis sets in, and once that sets in, it's very hard to identify the face. Yes, yes, David. Rigor mortis is the body contracts. You see, when you uh, when you don't uh, bring more water, the body must have water. What is it? Eighty-five percent of the body is water. Eighty-three percent, eighty-two percent, whatever it is, uh, the body has to have water. You can go days without eating food. You cannot go days without drinking water. The body has to reproduce itself. The blood system, etc. When you're dead, uh, your functions stop. Gradually, that affects the whole body. It contracts. And lower lane, I've seen bodies after death, you can't recognize them. I've seen already bodies within 72 hours, and I could not recognize the face. So, every context, there's nothing left to recognize. So, that's the great... On the other hand, you can have an example, which I gave you. I once saw a misery... I, uh, well, why don't... Uh, Avi, Avi, move, move closer. I, I want... I once saw a mystery movie. Uh, what, what, what's that? That's Ocean. One second. That's Stewart. What's your first name? Stewie, move closer. Don't sit so far. I've been teaching all day, and it's uh, it's psychologically hard for me when you're far. So I once saw a movie where someone committed a murder 25 years earlier, and he got away with it, and then uh, suddenly, 25 years later, was up in the Arctic. They found the body in the ice, perfectly preserved. So they could catch the murderer. It was a mystery movie. I forget what it was. I must have seen it 25, 30 years ago, but it left an impression on me. I just read now that they found two bodies up in the Arctic area of, a, of a, two kids who evidently died or were killed in a hailstorm or something uh, hundreds of years ago. And the bodies are in almost perfect condition. So you see, there can always be exceptions to the rule. In other words, if you drown in, in, in the Moscow Lake, let's say you go on the ice uh, during the winter and you drown, and they pull the body out in April when it thaws, it could very well be you have identification. But generally speaking, you have 72 hours. On the other hand, simonim have one advantage that they, many simonim you have even after death. The problem is, of course, how good is simonim? And here we divided Simonim into three categories, and I showed you the Arach HaShulch, and I showed you its analogy to Aveda. And, we, and, and, you know, people approach this topic. When I was a kid and I knew a little bit about it, it seemed so difficult to me. But when you really 
master the topic, you find it's not so difficult. You just need a good Rebbe who can put down the ground rules. And we divide Simonim into Mufhakim, Beinoniyim, and Geruim. Sometimes for Beinoniyim, they use the word Emtsayim, but the word we would use in modern Hebrew is Beinoniyim. And here there's a lot of common sense involved. A simon muvak may be enough to be mata the aguna on that basis alone. What is a simon muvak? The simplest example of all, uh, someone broke their hand and uh, their hand never healed properly. So that you can tell right away, particularly today it becomes a simon muvak. With x-rays, uh, you can see right away the hand was shattered. It matches up exactly to the x-ray that you have from a few years ago, or exactly you knew he broke his hand in four places. I, I, lower lane, it once happened to me, right outside this window. 1983, uh, 1983, December, right outside this window on a beautiful sunny day, in a stairway that no longer exists, that was built for me, that was called Malot Rakafot, or Rakefet, Malot Rakefet, the boys used to call it. It was built for me because I was the only one walking back and forth every day on this property from here to, well, those were the days I taught so hard, I still don't know how I did it, to Michala, to BMT, BMT, Michala. And I tripped and I went flying. I broke my hand in four places. So that's a Simon Mufak. Another uh, Simon Mufak, a child is born with six thumbs, six fingers. It's a Simon Mufak. You can't... Uh, how, how often do you, you, you find that? You see, what I mentioned about Ted Williams is very fascinating. His eyesight was unbelievable. Did anyone tell me more about Ted Williams? There's something about him that is true only about Ted and no other ball player. But, uh, he was the only ball player still a baseman for decades. That's interesting. But I'm talking about something else that has to do with his eyesight. He was the only ball player I know who fought in World War II and was called up for the Korean War. Can anyone tell me why? He was a pilot. And he was an expert pilot because in being a pilot, particularly at that time, you're not dealing with how advanced uh, aviation and navigation is today. A lot depended on eyes. And this man, from way up, when he came down, he could see what today computers have to tell you where the target is. He had the ability to see from, from a few miles up in the sky. And it affected his career. If you read his memoir, he writes about the type of planes he flew in Korea. That there was, Mama, you read it, you shiver, you shake. It was very undeveloped, very not advanced yet. And he was called up again. That's how much the uh, Air Force needed him because he was a pilot. It's an amazing story. But you see, that eyesight, when a person is dead, you can't tell. You see, there's no way of telling that this man had vision that you find out of one in two million. There's no way to take a dead eye and, and figure out what the eyesight was. It's impossible. But six fingers, that's uh, Mufak. Then we went into Beinoniyim, Gruim. We got involved with the whole discussion about Mumim that you find in a Kohen. That was this week's Sedra, that Pasal Kohen. Uh, yesterday's Sedra. We got involved in a side discussion, which I uh, want to tell you I put a lot of uh, stress on. And, I, I, and it was, if I can come back to my eulogy of Monday... Uh, the ability to differentiate between a strike and a ball when you have to think under pressure. It was one of my worst moments in teaching in that sense that the girl in the wheelchair, the crippled girl, asked me the question in front of a whole class, in front of another 35, 40 girls. And what, why, why, why can't I serve in the base? Remember what I told you? Why can't I serve in the base Mikdash? And this girl already is asking a question uh, in a wheelchair. 
and you don't have time, you know, the whole class is looking at you, and they expect Aaron Rakethet to, to answer. I mean, you know, people have an attitude uh, that someone who's learned a lot of Torah knows all the answers. Uh, the first thing I, a Rebbe has to say to a class is, we don't know all the answers. Life is an ongoing process. But that class is looking at me. And uh, Baruch Hashem, I answered what I answered. I spoke about it last week, and it was a very powerful answer. And I have to tell you, she accepted it, and the class was very, very impressed with the answer, that it was Lanyan. And that I owe my knowledge of Jewish history. If I wouldn't understand Ruzhin, I, I hinted at it last week, I can't go into it this week, but if you understood what I was saying, because see, Ruzhin was Malchut. And uh, anyone who knows Ruzhin, uh, or what you call Ruzhin, we call it Ruzhin in Hebrew, but in English they would say Ruzhin, the Ruzhin dynasty, Yiddish is Ruzhin, Malchut. And when you look at Malchut, uh, prima facie, what is this? Rebbeim dressed the Ruzhin of Rebbe, Rebbe Israel Friedman, his... Bekesha was made by the manufacturer of the king's clothes in Europe. There were a few manufacturers that manufactured clothes with golden threads. Who could pay for it? Who ordered it? Kings, emperors, and the Rishon Rebbe. And Rishon practiced Malchut. It was known to him. He left the six sons for Bayim and endless grandsons. And until today... I don't think there's a famous Rebbe in the world who doesn't have some region of blood in him. Maybe Bells and Gare doesn't have region. I don't know. But every other Rebbe, Twesky, Horowitz, they're all, is a Hagar, there's all interconnection, Heschel. It's all region. And today, I don't know to what extent they practice this type of Malchut. But when I learned, when I studied Jewish history, when I relived Hasidus, and the sons of a, a fourth originer to the point of view of bloodshed. Those of you that know the history, you have no idea. They asked the Shrita. I mean, you know, when Hasidim fight, this, this is people, I, I, when I was young, I used to get so upset with the enmity and hatred among Orthodox Jews. So all the Jews used to tell me, calm down. It's always been that way. It'll always be that way until Mashiach comes. And, and they always use the example of Rishon and, and sons of sons of the sons of Hasidim and Rishon and Hasidim. They, 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 it was Mamish war to the last drop of blood. But what do you mean, Rishon? The sons of his right. Royalty. Remember I told you last week he had Hasidim dressed in army uniforms. Today we have real Jews dressed, real army uniforms on Jews. Then it was fake army uniforms on Jews. And when he, when he went in the street, his carriage was drawn by six, eight horses, like a lord, like a prince. What's going on here? And when I studied Hasid as well, I understood it. The Hasid wants to see the Rebbe perfect. The Rebbe's a symbol. See Labriyot, see Hashlimut, as the Gemara says, last week in and the Rishonim all explained what a chain Lam means. It's a strange word. They used to imagine the money left over in the base of Migdash. They took golden bars, and when Yantif came and the masses came in Aliyah, they looked at the golden, beautiful bars. Well, I don't know what's going on here. But it's, it's, it's a symbol of perfection. And it's physical perfection and spiritual perfection. It ties into one. And this is why in the Beis HaMikdash, someone with a moon, it's not Chasva Khalila. They're not capable and not holy and not sacred and don't have Salam Elohim. But when we see the Kohen doing the Avodah, we want it to be perfect. We want to be perfect. We want to be healed. 
We don't want to be sick. We don't want to be maimed. We want see hashlemet, shem bo pkam, shem bo dalam. And when we see the Kohen doing the Avodah, we want it to be a perfect picture. It's like the original Rebbe. He was the most humble of all men, and yet he conducted himself like a king. And the Hasidim, the poor, downtrodden Hasidim, the way I describe it and work on the Rav, uh, the word Rav's words, but at least I deserve the credit. I'm the first one to translate it into English. Uh, uh, how the Rav would describe them. But when they came to the Rebbe, suddenly the poor Jew was caught up in Malchat. And that was my answer. And that's the whole question. What about what puzzles are going? Is it a semen? It's certainly not a semen muvak. Is it a semen benoni? Is it less than that? You're bald. What does it mean you're bald? Many of us are bald. What is bald? How bald is bald? These are interesting questions. Your neck is disproportionate to your body. My wife has an expression. There's some people who don't have a neck. Some people have large ears. They look like uh, there was a baseball player, Bill Wrigley. He uh, played shortstop for the Giants, 40s into the 50s perhaps. He was a manager afterwards. If you look at his picture, he's like all ears, tremendous ears. Oh, is it, what kind of simon is that? Perhaps Benoni? Now, two Benoniim equal a Mufak. Generally speaking, people disregarded the simanim gruim. In other words, black hair, uh, uh, blonde hair, uh, brownish hair, brunette. What's the big deal? Uh, uh, blue eyes, hazel eyes, hooked nose, slightly hooked, uh, less hooked, uh, fat, skinny, tall, short. So what? A million and one people meet this description. Somehow on the radio when they announce the police are looking, someone is missing and they give a description, I laugh, because the description you hear on the radio can fit half a million people. He's a, a man of 67, he's 5 foot uh, 8, he left the house wearing a windbreaker and a cap, he wears glasses, he speaks Hebrew, English, uh, Yiddish. Oh, what's the big deal? How many people meet that description? It's unbelievable. So you might think Simon grew and dismissed altogether. The truth is, and we'll come to it today, that many poskim totally dismissed Shimonim Gruim. But Rabbi Yitzchel was Machadesh, just as two Simonim Beinunim equal a Mufak, two Gruim equal a Beinuni. So that, technically speaking, you can have four Simonim Gruim, the person had brownish hair, hazel eyes, was five, nine, with a slightly hooked nose. But you don't dismiss it. The body you found, brown hair, hazel eyes, slightly hooked nose. You can see that he was about 5'9", when uh, before death, that much forensic medicine already knew 100, 200 years ago. You don't dismiss it. Two groom, one bain on knee. Two groom, one bain on knee. Two bain on him equal one mufak. You see, it's an amazing thing here. But remember, what you're doing here is circumstantial evidence. I don't want you to ask me, how can you be sure? How can you be certain? The truth is, you can never be sure. You can never be certain. But it's circumstantial evidence. This guy is missing. This is the body you found. This is where we know he was. There's circumstantial evidence. So that the more simonim you have, even if they grew him, but it makes, makes the circumstantial evidence 
all the stronger. And this is uh, what's involved in the halacha. Now, the other, the other topic which always will come up is what about clothes? In other words, you found the guy, clothes, tzitzit, bekisha, baseball hat. I mean, some identifying garment that you know was his. Uh, what about a wallet? Found a wallet in his pocket. What about personal papers? And here, time and again, we have to deal with the problem. Is it something you would lend out? You see, certain things we lend. I have a pen. Someone wants to borrow my pen. Lend them my pen. I have a safer. Someone wants to borrow my safer. I lend them my safer. There are many things, many things we lend out. Uh, but there are other things we wouldn't lend out. You see, and times have changed. Nowadays, I'm not so certain you borrow clothes. When I told you, when I went to yeshiva, it was natural and normal. Students in the dorm borrowed clothes, one the other. I need a white shirt for Shabbos. So imagine they find the body, and on his shirt, he has a name, and it's not his name. It's his neighbor's name, his friend's name, his roommate's name. He borrowed clothes. So you have to get involved. What do people lend? What don't they lend? Uh, and it could very well be, today we don't lend out clothes. A hundred years ago, we did lend out clothes. Today, you wouldn't lend someone your wallet. Or maybe you do. What about a credit card? I mean, the, the questions here are, are just endlessly fascinating. See, I, I give you an example with a credit card. I was once, uh, a few years ago, I was in uh, Beverly Hills. So uh, there was a, a woman who was very good to us. We were coming, I was there as uh, for Ami when our executive director was there. And this woman had made unbelievable arrangements for us for our entire trip. We had a car, a driver at our disposal. So like the last night we were there, we asked her and her husband to come out for uh, supper. And he was sitting in the restaurant. And you visualize the sight. These, the woman, her husband, myself, my wife, and uh, the executive director. And he had a lot of problems on his mind. This is not, it's not Rabbi Graf, this is ancient history now. And he had a lot of problems on his mind. I just say that because you know uh, Abby Graf, it's not Abby. He had a lot, and this executive director had a lot of problems on his mind, personal problems, family problems. I knew of them, and he doesn't feel well. So in the middle of the meal, he says, I have to excuse myself, I just don't feel well. And he says, he leaves me his credit card to pay for everything. Just sign my name, whatever it is, and pay. Fine. Uh, well, in a fasty restaurant, give him a credit card, no one, no one questions it, you sign it, that's it. Um, you know, even in a fancy restaurant or any place, even if you don't sign the uh, the credit card, but they give you a bill and the bill gets back to Visa, Visa will pay it unless you protest. So no one checks it out. So they give me back his credit card. So there I am walking around with a credit card that doesn't belong to me. You follow me, Avi? And this is a real halachic problem. Because basically speaking, if I were to wake you up in the middle of the night and say to you, a credit card People lend it or don't lend it. Your gut reaction would have to be you don't lend out a credit card. And nevertheless, take a look. Here you can have an example where someone lends out a credit card. Okay. And then we started to go into examples. We dealt with the Shev Yaakov. We dealt with um, Rabbi Akivega. And now I want to begin with the Nodabi Yehuda. And uh, here, here is a very fascinating question, a description of life. And Loa Lainu, it's a description of life uh, that repeats itself and repeats itself time and again. Mental illness. 
mental illness. Nobody heard of Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yehuda Landau, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Cheskel, pardon me, Rabbi Cheskel Segel Landau. He was the Rebbe of Prague. Uh, his, he, he died in 1793. His years, if I'm not mistaken, 1713 to 1793. He was the Godel Sheb of the 18th century. He called his Shalatan Shivat Nadal Be Yehuda in honor of his father, in memory of his father. His Chidushin Teshasa called it's in memory of his mother, Chaya. And on the Shulchan Aruch, his commentary is called Dagul Meiravava. One out of ten thousand, it's a quote from Shia Shirim. And then Adam Yehuda was Zaychud to become the Posek Mufak of the generation. The stories about him are legendary. He was tall, stately, uh, new science and secular studies, uh, Polish lords, nobility, kings came to him for a blessing, for advice. He spoke uh, the Poli- Polish, he spoke German, a genius of geniuses. Now, he does here with the Meshuggah. Now, let, let me just say something about uh, Meshuggah. And uh, I talk about it, the Rev talks about it, I have the Rev speaking about it. And it's very fascinating. You see, nowadays we really see people who are mentally ill. The reason is very simple. In our society we can afford to put them away. So that we have mental institutions, lower Lenu, if I can only give you a simple example, what you don't realize, and it always comes out in the Holocaust, the Yom HaShoah, there are in Israel thousands of men and women who never recovered from the Holocaust that have been institutionalized since 1945. Understand? People from the time they came to Israel, you can't imagine the cost involved, although it's borne by the German government, the uh, lower lane, that gets us into the question of reparations, it's not for now, but the cost is borne basically by the German government. These are people who could never get over what it was like to live under the Nazis. Uh, it's something none of us can conceive of. As a matter of fact, I'll, if I can just digress for one minute, uh, Rabbi Yosef Soloveitchik, Baron's son, giant, so Jesse called me a week ago, maybe less than a week ago, and he says to me, your volumes on the Rav are no longer needed in the Haredi world. So I said, the dreamt the Haredi world is going to be able to comprehend my volumes that to deal with uh, the Rav and, and Boston and being Brahmin and secular knowledge and, and uh, students of pals, everything I spoke about uh, last uh, Monday. So yes, he said, I said, but what are you talking about? He said, I was just in a bookstore, and two volumes appeared, Uvdat Umin Hagei Brisk. It's about the Velvel, the Rav's uncle. Anyway, I headed to the bookstore on a Wednesday or Thursday, whatever it was, and I never paid 85 shekel for two volumes more happily. I couldn't put them down on Shabbat. I had to make a deal with myself to, to learn Gemara two-thirds of Shabbat, and one-third I devoted to getting into the first volume. And it's fabulous. It's a description of this, but I'll tell you what's unbelievable. At the start of the first volume is Reb Mishulam David. That today is the elder person in the Brisk family of Jerusalem. It's the Reb Velvela's eldest surviving son, Reb Nishi's head of the Brisk Yeshiva, Reb Mishulam David. Reb Mishulam David, word by word, describes how his father escapes from the Holocaust. And he describes Brisk when the Nazis conquered it. And he describes Vilna. And I tell you to read that volume it, uh, it was basically forbidden to read it on Shabbos. I'm a sinner. But I couldn't put it down. 
And there he stresses you. No one could ever understand what it was like. You were afraid to lift your head because any minute a bullet could hit you, could kill you. Death was all over the place. Any Jew you walked out of your house, a Gestapo saw you, shot you, and this was 39. We're not talking already the, the death camps. Imagine someone who was incarcerated in a death camp and survived. How can you be normal afterwards? You understand? But nowadays, in our society, it's hard to find uh, uh, someone who's Meshuga on the streets. And uh, you often, if you know the Shtublach in Katamon, there's one, one man there who should be institutionalized and he's not. And I always see him whenever I come, Min Chamar, whatever it is, and I point him out to my grandsons. I say, you should know, this is what, when, when we speak about someone who's Meshuga, this is what we're talking about. And you don't see this often today. But it's important to know that people like this exist and they're human beings and you have to have a lot of compassion. And the Rav talks about it. When he talks about Banshe Tzweig, the Rav is overwhelming. I have it in my book. Where, I mean, the Rav, Kedako Bakodesh, how he speaks about that nowadays in America, says, you don't even know what I'm talking about. You can't even start to understand Yehud, uh, Yehuda Leit Peretz with Banshe Tzweig, where he describes this person who is not totally normal and, and, and what his wishes are out of life. And, and I say to my grandchildren, here you see what the Rav's talking about. The Rav says, in Europe we had people like this in every town. There was a Shtat Meshugana. He says, in every little hamlet there were people like this. But in America, they're put away. Okay. So here I'm now quoting from Sherat Shuvat Nodabi Yehuda, Mahadura Tanita, the second edition, not Mahadura Kama. You have to know Rabbinic Hebrew to understand what this means, but we would call Chelik Bet, Siman Samach Dalet. And they tell the following story. There was, uh, uh, and by the way, these Mishugayim, uh, would have money. What does it mean they would have money? The Rev explained, you know, it's very interesting how they would live. Their relatives would leave them money. Some wealthy Jew who was trustworthy would take the money. It was either a father, an uncle, whatever it was. And he would use the money in his business. But he would undertake to support this Meshuggah to see that this poor man had where to sleep and where to eat and had sustenance. Some of them married. Some of them married. And this leads us to a, a very interesting conclusion that I don't think this conclusion is real today. Rabbi Rachman does have a point on this issue. Some of them married because they were women of low status, poor, impoverished. They wanted a husband, wanted a husband, wanted to have children. They would marry. Some of them married. Nowadays, I'm not certain uh, the women would marry. Nowadays, we have lower lane many women that have the attitude... Uh, better no marriage than a poor marriage. And I don't want to get involved with that now, but it is it is a bit of a reality. So here you have an example of a Meshuga who was married, who left his city and didn't come back. After five days, Goyim came and the Goyim said, brought a body with them and they said, we found this body in a little dwarf, a little hamlet, a little village, one mile from here. And we don't know, we, and, the, and the, no one knows how the body was found. Was it found in water? Was it found in dry land? However, his clothes looked very different. And from the clothes, it seemed that these were the clothes that this Meshuggah wore. Now, what does it mean? Uh, listen, a normal person tries to dress neatly tries to match up his clothes, a normal person. 
we wear a blue shirt with blue pants. If we wore a blue shirt with brown pants, I wear a kippah that's brown and blue. You have to tie it together. There's a normal person has a certain feeling for clothes. You're not going to go into the closet and put on a psychedelic shirt with uh, with pants that are striped, whatever it is, with with with, with vulgar colors. A normal person, someone who's who's not totally there, his clothes is odd, and they saw from the clothes. This has to be the Meshuganist clothes. Now, of course, that alone is not a siman, because, uh, as you know, all right, uh, what kind of siman is it? So many people wear different types of clothes. Maybe he borrowed the clothes. Maybe this guy uh, held up the Meshugana, robbed his clothes. Anything is possible. However, they got aided that this man had certain signs in his body. His wife testified that he had had a broken limb. His chotno, his father-in-law testified that uh, he had an indentation in his forehead and this indentation he had, and you see this may be why he became a sugar. It could be he became a sugar after he was married. He was hit by a tremendous rock. And this rock left an indentation in his forehead where he was hit. Very interesting. This may already explain how the guy became a sugar. I'm saying this in parentheses because the Nodobi Huda doesn't deal with it. But just from the point of view of science, it makes a lot of sense that something happened to a certain part of his brain and that is quite an indentation in someone's forehead. That is quite a siman. Not only that, his sister, Tisha Achot Chatno, that he had uh, a, a wart on his chest. And she doesn't remember on which side. And his sister also testified that he had a wart near his belly button. Now the doctor that received the body when they brought it back and prepared the body for burial said that he recognized by the height, by what he could see of the man's face, through forensic medicine, this had to be the Meshuggan. In other words, from the point of view of forensic medicine, I'm trying to say that taking into account the height, the face, what it looks like now, a week or so after death, he reached the conclusion that this has to be the Meshuggan. In addition, they found the Benton forehead. And... Not only did he find the Benton forehead that the doctor testified that while he was alive he had treated him for this accident and he absolutely recognized. One of the Adam also testified that they found the mark on his uh, chest. The only thing they didn't remember finding was the mark near his belly button. The wart or the birthmark, whatever Shuma means near his belly button. So you see, it's very fascinating. Do you have all these simanim? Do you have enough to be matir? Is there any siman muvak here? And the Nodabi Yehuda treats it as follows. Number one, the head bashed in in front is absolutely a siman muvak. No two ways about it. The fact that they found the wart or the birthmark on his chest, 
that perhaps is no more than a siman benoni at most. The fact that the doctor is guessing the weight, the height that this must have been, must have been the man, perhaps is no more than a semen garua. Because after all, there can be many people with that weight or height. At this point already, the face is deformed, you can't recognize it. But, there is one tremendous problem. Why didn't anyone find the what or the birthmark next to his navel button. How come that didn't show up? And this is the question the Nolda Yehuda got. And the Nolda Yehuda hints it so keenly. doesn't require them to dig up the body and search. No, he says as follows. Number one, what does it mean you didn't find the birthmark? When did his sister testify? Could very well be that she gave her testimony after the body was already buried. Since those burying him, attending to the body, attending to the corpse, those that received the corpse, didn't know about this wart on his per- next to his navel button, they never looked for it. They didn't pay attention. That's number one. But number two, he says something ingenious. Tell me, when do you walk around parading your navel button in front of your sister. When you're young, grow a little bit older, we develop a sense of shame if we're normal people. I mean, don't be frightened, it's only a bird. If we're normal people, you understand, we're living in a world today where I can't even start to conceive of what's happening in this world where, where, the, where, where the, the, the post, I don't know, it's just unbelievable. I don't know what to tell you. Boycott the post. Don't buy it. I don't buy the post. I used to buy the post every Friday. I will not spend seven and a half shekel on Friday. I refuse. Just refuse. So they have this big article on the two lesbians who adopted this child. Where are we living today? Where are we living? And this is normalcy. Two lesbians, two homosexuals, two parents. This is normal. God have mercy on us. This is uprooting not just Tayyak Mitzvah. It's uprooting the seven basic commandments. Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noach. The rubric of adultery in the Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noach, if any who have ever learned the Sugar and Shas, means proper sexual behavior. And it means a lot more than adultery. And, and Rebunish Shalom, lesbianism, two mothers, two... Rebunish Shalom, most normal people don't parade their navel button in front of their sister. So the Nodri Yudha says so brilliantly, the sister probably saw it when she was young. Now what happens in the course of time? A man becomes a hairy ape, right or wrong. Isn't this one of the characteristics of the male species? Well, when you become a hairy ape, no one sees what's next to your navel button. It's covered up by hair. So no wonder those that dealt with the body did not see it. And the nobody who this suggests that uh, you should check with the sister when she last saw that navel button, uh, the, the wart or the birthmark near the navel button. However, the Nodah Behuda says, if she's no longer alive, and you see, it's also fascinating that you're talking about a period of time when people die young. See, we don't realize that today. Today we take for granted a person in his 30s, 40s, 50s, and all his siblings, everyone is healthy. We take it for granted. Generally speaking, it is that way. But in the 1700s, if you hit 40, you were already an old man. 50 was fabulous. 
It's an unbelievable change. So we can't tell why he says that, but maybe you already knew that the sister was dead and they wrote or he was just guessing. But he said if she's dead, then we don't have to worry. We can be Mekiel. I'm positive it's what I said, that he didn't see the... The, she didn't see the birthmark, she didn't see the navel button for many decades already from the time he was a kid of three or four or five and his sister took care of him. He grew a lot of hair and that's why no one saw it but it's not a chachachsha, it's not a stira, it's not a problem halachically and the noda b'yuchudu is matir diaguna 1000% mainly on the basis of the simen muvhakim, of the forehead that was broken in, flattened out, the mum that was one in a million. How many people walk around like that? It's like taking tefillin, pressing it down in your forehead, and pressing it so strong that it breaks, I think this is called the cranium, that it breaks the bone and flattens out. No, who has that happened to and that's the Simon Mafak. Everything else can be Simon Baninim, Simon Gruim, but it all adds up to the circumstantial evidence, the clothes he was wearing. In other words, even if Chaish Chaishin Lishayla, but there's so many other aspects here that the Nodabi Hudurus Mata, Lahalacha, Ulamaisa. That's one example. One example of Simonim from the Nodabi Huda. Give you, give you another example. He was a Pesach Mufak, the Nodabi Huda. If you want to know on what level the Nodabi Huda was, all you have to look is at Rabbi Moshe Feinstein and at the Rav. And I explained this many times, and I, I'm not going to go into great detail, but all of you know that there are many ways to Paskin. You take Rabbi Vadji Yosef, Rabbi Vadji Yosef deals with all the Achronim, all that has been written. The Svadic world, the Ashkenazic world. Hungarians deal with all that's been written at least in the Ashkenazic world. There's no Hungarian that has Ravavadja's breadth of knowledge of both the Ashkenazim and the Hungarians. You take the Litvish Poskim, they rarely deal with Achronim. They only deal Shuchanarach, the Nasekalim, and what they considered, what Hashkacha considered the main achronim. Time and again, Rav Moshe quotes the Nodu Yehuda, he quotes the Chatam Sofa. When the Rav called Rachman to task 1975 over the whole question of Tavla Mate of Dume, the Mate of Almala, with Chazakot, with women wanting to remarry, not wanting to marry, etc., with the whole question of Afkat Kedushin, what did the Rav say? I quote it to you word by word. What does that man think? That he knows something the Nodabiyuta didn't know? The Chatam Sofa didn't know? Look who the Rav picked on. So you see, this was the Nodabiyuta. This was an Akron that Torah history crowns him Shikhmo Lamala. They give him a crown of greatness. You cannot study Psak, you cannot study response literature without dealing with the Nodabi Yehuda. He was a giant, a giant of giant. I can tell you that generally speaking, almost every Landau in the world 
is a direct descendant of the Nodab Yehuda. There must be tens of thousands of Torah Jews today, direct descendants of the Nodab Yehuda. If the land that was a Levi, you can bet on it that he's a direct descendant of the Nodab Yehuda. Segel, Levi, Amskula, you can bet on it. And of course, then from the daughters, my own grandchildren are direct descendants of the Nodab Yehuda, but that already is with different names. It comes down through different parts of the family. It's not the Landau name, but the Eisen name. But I know so many Landau's direct descendants. Most of them from, most of them from, not all of from. David Loalenu in France, he's no longer alive in Paris. There was a famous medical doctor, Landau. Eighth generation from the Nodab Yehuda. Son after son. Totally assimilated. French Jew. His daughter at one time played with Aliyah and lived mamish door to door with me in uh, Berlin 18. And Rebani Shalom, let me tell you, Francois Landau, ninth generation from the Nodab Yehuda. Her knowledge of Torah, Judaism, zilch. Totally assimilated, but with some residue Jewish feeling. Unfortunately, she came, wasn't a good experience here, went back. I have no idea where she is today and where she's at. I pray that she's not totally assimilated. But that was the Nodabi Yehuda, a giant of giants. Now, here, here we're, we're quoting again from the Mahadura Tanina. And let's see, the other, I just want to check. Yeah, this is Samach Aleph. The other tshuva we quoted was Samach Talad. This is Samach Aleph. And this tshuva was written in Prague. Very fascinating. Uh, a woman was an Aguna. Her husband drowned. And we can't use the word drowned, we're not certain. But he disappeared in Mayim She'en Lechem Sof. The 25th of Tammuz, the guy fell into a body of water, and as you know, what do we define as Mayim She'en Lechem Sof? That there's no way you can know whether or not the man came out at some other shore, a miracle happened, because you do not see all the water. <coughs> Excuse me. Mayim She'en Lechem Sof, you just can't see all the water. It's like an ocean, like a tremendous uh, body of water. Even a lake can be Maim Shangla himself, obviously. Just can't see all parts of the shore. Okay, this was the 25th of Tammuz. 25th of Av, one month later, on Shabbat, a Gentile found the body about a thousand amad, that would be, uh, for the sake of argument, I don't know for sure, but let's say uh, about a mile and a half away from the place where the body last went into the water. And the Jews came on Shabbat, he told the Jews, see Gentiles were not necessarily bad people, this was a decent Gentile, found the body, evidently saw the body was a Jewish body. I don't know exactly how he could tell, but he, I don't know exactly how, maybe a Brit Mila, a month later in the water, perhaps he could tell from the Brit Mila, he knew it was a Jew. Maybe the body had uh, other signs on it, and he told the Jews 
and the Jews who were betot chatchum, in other words, the Jews that lived within the chum of this body of water where the Gentiles found the body, came on Shabbat, and they watched the body until nightfall. Nightfall, they contacted the people from the village where the man lived, and people came from that village to bury the man. And those that came immediately saw the body, the size of the body, and they said, we can swear that this is Fibish, the, the husband of Chela, but there, that lives in our village, we can swear this is the individual. And you have now the testimony. Someone named Zundel gives testimony that this person was boiled, boiled, the body they found, and that this is exactly the way Fibish was. He was always boiled from childhood on. We grew up together, and I know he was boiled, boiled, and I looked at the body, and I stared at the body, and I found that the body, the baldness was exactly like the baldness that Fibish had. Then there was another raid, Reb Masel, and, uh, and he came along, and he testified that he also knew Fibish, and this is exactly the Fibish ball, the body they found, it has to be him. Now, something very interesting here, because this happened to me on a, uh, on a, on a, on a, uh, a toe. Not not on a thumb, not on a finger, on a toe it happened to me. I couldn't believe it. The exact description of what happened to me. I once had an ingrown toenail. Well, when I was growing up in the Bronx, we didn't have uh, the concept that you go to a specialist. Uh, I, I have to say, it was a primitive concept of medicine compared to today. So my local doctor butchered the nail and cut out the nail, cut out the ingrown toenail, and as a result on one of my toes, and that, by the way, may be a simon mufak, I don't have a nail. I have wild nail-like growths, but there's no nail as you know it. On, a, on, a, uh, on, on one of my toes. Here, it's exactly what happened with this person on a finger. I couldn't believe the description. That he had an ingrown toenail, and they operated on it, Once the doctor tried to pull out the ingrown nail on his finger, the nail was taken out entirely, and what you have is a nail that grows wild. And they described exactly which finger it was. And lo and behold, on the corpse, that's exactly the finger they found. With the ingrown nail, with the nail growing wild, exactly what they knew that this man would have. Now, this is the question that comes to the Nod of And he's matir on the basis of the ingrown toenail. That is beyond any question. The boldness, see that already is open to debate. That gets us involved with the calling, with everything I spoke about before. 
What is the psal? What do you mean boldness? How bold is bold? That's an interesting question. We grow older, we become bold. What about this one kid in the kollel that's totally bold? The age of 24, 25. I don't know what, how old he is. That already, you see, that, that Jack is bald, that I'm losing my hair. I wouldn't say that's a simon mufak. We're older. May not even be a simon bainoni, not even a bainoni, it's garua. But someone in his 20s? Or what about when you're so bald that, you know, they say it's like you polished your forehead. It's, uh, there's nothing there. You can just put cream on it and it will reflect. It's like a mirror. Uh, that may be a semen benoni or better. So, the Noda Behuda says that may be a semen benoni. But the male, that is 100% a semen mafak. And on that basis, he says, get together a baitin, accept all the eight in front of the baitin, it's circumstantial evidence here, you don't have an opening shut case, but with everything you have, the Nodab Yehuda is Matia, the woman to remarry. And that's a second example from the Nodab Yehuda, Simen Mufak, where the Iker Eidah, the Iker Heta, is a Simen Mufak. There's a lot of circumstantial evidence. The person drowned, you know where he drowned. One month later, they pull a body out of the water, approximately near where he drowned. This is the only Jew missing. The height is the same. But with all that we've said, the Heta can't get off the floor. The boldness already, and evidently was a type of boldness that was startlingly uh, noticeable, that already starts to develop the case, but the ingrown fingernail with the operation and the wild nail that's growing there today, exactly on that finger, that's a simon mufak that is 1,000% above the crowd. So, not be huda, absolutely matir. Now we can come into the uh, the great Rabbi inspector. And as I mentioned to you, Rabbi again, it's hard for us to conceive today if we knew what Rabbi Moshe Feinstein was like in America, the focal figure of Psak. See, in the state of Israel, we don't have a focal figure. It's, it's hard to give an example here because we're so split. Every group looks to its own Posek. There's no question that the greatest Posek in the state of Israel in terms of uh, the march of time who will be recalled and cited a thousand years from now is Rabbi Vajay Yosef. That is no question. But I cannot say that he's a focal Posek for everybody. That's because it's caught up in the Machloket, the Isfad, the Ashkenazi Machloket, the Zionist, anti-Zionist Machloket, the Shas, Agudat Yisrael, political Machloket, so it's not, I can't say, see, I live here, and I know about his greatness, but I can't feel, the crowd feels to him, the way we felt to Reb Moshe. Understand, in America, the Hasidic world, I mean, everyone knew Reb Moshe was Reb Moshe, the only ones that really didn't accept him were the Satma. And even though the Moto, the Satma Rebbe, eulogized him, uh, uh, but nevertheless, 
Satma caused of Moshe a lot of aggravation during his lifetime. Because uh, when they disagreed with Psakim like an artificial insemination, they not just disagreed, they fought a bitter battle. And uh, uh, that's not right. And, and it's very frightening that Jews can fight that way, but what can I tell you? I'm told that's Hasidic traditions. When they fight, they fight to the end. But uh, Rab Moshe was Rab Moshe. Rab Yitzchel it was the Paul Five volumes, five volumes of Shelet and Shuvat. Everyone turned to the man from all over the world. And he was, as I said, one of these last examples of prominent rabbinic figures who basically were above the crowd, were not marred, seeing the modern times, the scuff and the politics, mar everyone. Whose camp are you in? By, by the way, Yitzchak is very fascinating. He himself, and I'm not saying this because of why you propaganda. Believe me, I'm not. Uh, I'm not. An, I'm not enough on why you's payroll to feel obligated to uh, to propagandize for them. But he was a very broad-minded person, and he was just. He already was what the, he you know lived before the real Zionist movement. He died in 1896. But what we can call the nascent Zionist movement or the precursor to the Zionist movement, the Chovavet Zion. Rabbi Tzolchan was a sponsor beyond any question of a doubt. What's amazing is he had a secretary, Rabbi Yaakov Lipschitz. He was totally anti-Zionist. And his secretary, his right hand, his chronicler, a man who left the three-volume autobiography, his secretary totally thwarted Rabbi Tzolchan and who didn't even realize it, perhaps, but time and again, he made his public pronouncements as best he could, anti-Zionist, kept the Zionism out of it, Chibatzion out of it, he was anti, it was amazing. So even Rabbi Tzachon already was caught up in what becomes the uh, accepted norm of the 20th century, whose side are you on? I'm paraphrasing Gemara and Megillah. Halanu Olitzarenu. So even Rabbi Tzachon, with his secretary, and the story is a legend because I yet knew people who knew them. I mean, as you got to remember, Rabbi Zohan Inspector died in 1896. His secretary lived into the 20th century. I yet met people who knew the secretary, who knew, you know, the living tradition, the Machloket. Can you imagine? The Rebbe was a It's like the Rev in the 1970s. The Rev in the 1970s was still a great Zionist. It was still the same Rev. Many of the students already were, were gagging him, censoring him, uh, uh, but and and the Rebbe couldn't do anything because at that stage in life you're dependent. He's older. He's feeble. He he has so much responsibility. See, life is funny when you're young and have the energy. No one cares. No one knows. It's part of life. No one's going to turn to a kid of thirty and proclaim him the Gadol even if he has more learning than anyone in the generation. But when you're sixty and you have less energy and your strength is ebbing. You had a Gadol Hadar, and everyone is bothering you, and you need your secretaries, your right arm, so you have to overlook the fact that he's a Satma, and you're a Mizrahiite in today's language. Same thing with the Rav. All the Rav could do is whisper in my ear, whisper in the ear of the other, the other fellows who visited Rebbe, who were from my era, he would say, my students today are crazy. That's the way the Rav would speak, they're crazy. They're, they're learning, they're wonders, superb. But, they 
Hashkaf is? I don't know where they got it from. You know, the world is moving black. What could the Rab do? These were students. So the same thing with the Yitzchak Khanan. And be aware, did you know, Yaakov, did you know this? Did you know it's legendary? His secretary, his secretary was, was a Kanoi, and, and he was the great precursor, liberal Rab Yitzchak Khanan. Uh, there was a doctor done in Yeshiva. Uh, you know, for those of you interested, it's not, it doesn't reach the level you know, this was the early 50s, Bernard Rebel Graduate School. It doesn't reach the level of doctorates that were done later. But it's, a, it's at least all we have in English from Rabbi Yitzchokhan Inspector. It's called Rabbi Isaac Ochan Inspector. It's Life and Letters, I believe, by Rabbi Dr. Frank Shimoff, who died within the last year or two years. Zechron Levracha was a wonderful man. So it's a fascinating volume. It was published by Yeshiva University. It's out of print. But it's Kadai, it's Kadai to get hold of that volume to read it. It's, it's all we have basically in English. Although in Rabbi Young's series on Rabbi Yitzchel there's a piece, if I'm not mistaken, by Rabbi Young's series on Jewish leaders, there's a piece on Rabbi Yitzchel by Kalman Mirsky. If I'm not mistaken, it's by Shul Kalman Mirsky. It can be checked. And it is a not very nice piece. So you have to learn a little bit who Rabbi Yitzchel was. I, I often feel bad that we need a definitive doctorate done in Rabbi Yitzchokhanan. Today, we could do a better doctorate than Ephraim Shima. Of course, simply we have better kalim and better means of research, and we have higher standards. We, we're, we're more trained in it and can reach higher heights. Uh, and it's a shame no one has come back to do full justice to Rabbi Yitzchokhanan Inspector. I published on the 100th anniversary of his, birth, uh, of his death, I published a piece on Chetar of the Trey and uh, I, I, it's published in Rakafana on Chelikbet. And that piece, I remember people were giving eulogies that year, were carrying my article around. I was told this guy gave a whole eulogy, an hour and a half. Everything from my article didn't mention my name once, which I write that they, they got nothing all over the place. My scholarship is open, but if you quote it, give me credit. Don't, uh, don't think it just appeared from the printer. The printer saw how to give the printer what the print. But I've been robbed so many times already that Sahatmanish, uh, I want to stay publicly and let it be recorded on the tape. I am Michael, all those that have robbed my scholarship. Although, had they quoted my name, maybe Gulali Olam, because there's nothing that makes a, a Talmud Chacham happier to know that he's quoted by someone else. And, and they're giving him credit. Okay. We're now in the end Yitzchak, Chelik Evanessa, Siman Chav Chet. And he talks about a very fascinating that this man disappeared a long time ago. And the woman has no idea where he is. Could you imagine a guy walked out of the house? It's before telephones. The guy disappeared. Disappeared off the face of the earth. Lelainu, like the three boys missing from Sultan Yaakov, like like Daniel Katz and Feldman. And uh, believe it or not, after many years, he doesn't say how many years. I don't know what it means Mangrab. Would be I would be curious to know. Four years, five years, three years, but whatever it is, the guy disappeared off the face of the earth. And Suddenly, uh, the the city in which she lives, the city which his last address, his passport arrives, and with the passport is a note that they found this person dead, and this is the passport they found on him. And they describe, according to the passport, and this is something you don't know, I don't think our passports have it anymore. But um, when, uh, when, when I first got my American passport years ago, they put in your height, the color of your eyes, 
I don't think they do that anymore. Am I right? For identification. Do they do that anymore? I don't think so. I think they just use a colored picture today and that's sufficient. And, uh, and they describe on the passport was written the way the man looked, that he was bald. And a few other descriptions, height, size, color of hair, color of eyes. Of course, these are all simonim gruim. But, all these simonim, the husband had. And this is the question that comes to Rabbi Hanan. Can you do anything about this? And this is a very difficult question. Because when all is said and done, what do you have here? For the sake of argument, five foot eight, black hair, hazel eyes, bald in front. So what? But you did find the passport on his body. Now, a few words about the passport. What type of passport is it talking about here? I, I, I can't be certain, but I'm willing to bet on it. It's not talking about the passport that you know. See, in Russia, there was what's called an internal passport. The Tsar and later the Communist Empire had to control the population. You could not live where you want to. It's hard for a Western mind to understand this. We have perfect freedom. You don't. You can't value freedom. I always used to knock democracy. I'm a great student of Alexis de Tocqueville, and I can tell you all the faults in democracy, which are faults. I never knock democracy again after I spent some time in Russia. Beginning with 1981, you will never hear me knock democracy. Because, could you imagine living where your domicile is state-controlled? Now, in order to control you, they gave you what's called an internal passport. It was somewhat like what we have in Israel, the Tudat Sehut. The Tudat Sehut in Israel basically is for uh, security reasons. That's why it was instituted. Because we have to know who are Jews and who are Arabs. And God forbid if there's a pigua, and thank God lately we've been living in either a fool's paradise or living a beautiful life. But God forbid if there is a terrorist incident and you have a hundred people arrested, you have to sort out who's who. Although, well, later we now live in a world where Jews are capable of anything too. But, you know, at the time the state was founded, no one ever dreamt that a Jew could lift up a hand to another Jew. That a Jew could, could shoot another Jew. This was inconceivable. Today you've got to be a little bit more careful, unfortunately. But what this is talking about is, I believe, the internal passport. And the internal passport was very detailed. Height, Remember those days they didn't have photography yet, they didn't have pictures yet, that I had to be able to identify you. How can they identify you? Height, weight, eyes, color of eyes, color of hair, any identifying features. I still remember when you applied for a passport, my first passport I think I got in the 1960s, I still remember any identifying features. And of course, the guy is bald. That's an identifying feature. And... And this is the question. Remember, you don't see the body. The body was buried far from the passport. Now, the passport becomes very important because the fact that dad has your name and it's a passport, that is a simon mufak. There's only one David Blum who is missing from this village. 
fact that you find that passport on that guy, on that body, that's a simon mufak. But then you get involved, maybe you lend the passport. But that's something, why should you lend it? Doesn't make sense. That's something precious, something personal, something you're not going to lend at all, something you wouldn't let out of your possession. That is your identity card. That is your protection. Remember, we're talking about Russia, we're talking about Tsarist Russia, we're talking about communist Russia. If the police make a raid on the apartment, you have to be able to show your passport. You don't have it, you're off to the Gulag. You're off to Siberia. You're suspect. That's certainly something you're not going to lend out. And Reb Yitzchak Al-Khanim considers the fact that this passport was found with this body as a simon mufak. Nothing more, nothing less. Now, then he goes in to the minor simonim in the past book. And of course he starts analyzing what is the value of these type of simonim. Only a simon mufak means something. Maybe with the avid two simanim bainoniyim. But someone is bald? What is that worth? It's a simon garua. It can't be any better than a simon garua. And height, weight, color of hair, color of eyes, all these are no more than a Simon Garua. The only question that he deals with is the baldness. How much was the baldness? Because baldness is a psu, it's a mum for kahuna. But the boldness that they talk about in Kahuna, the Rambam that I showed you last week, means totally bold, abnormally bold. And then it's a Shimon Benoni. But here, they didn't testify how great the boldness was. And if they didn't testify, we don't know how great, how total, how complete the boldness was. And therefore, we don't know whether it's a Benoni, whether we can consider it a Mun that is possessed by a Kohen, or is it no more than a Grua, which in turn, at time, was dismissed. So, here he says, I don't know what to answer on the Karachat, but at the end of the Tshuva, he comes to his tremendous Chiddush. And he says, but all Bishimanim grew him. I'm not of the opinion that they can be thrown away. The more Simanim grew him you have, they join together. And ultimately, two Simanim grew him equal a Simon Bainoni. Four Simanim grew him, it's like a mathematical expression, equal two Bainoniim. Two Bainoniim equal one Mufak. 
And if this is the case, then in this particular question where you have the passport, I think there are not simanim drugim that are up that we can matter the aguna to marry. And this is the way he paskins lahalacha ulamaisa. And what do you see here? What do you see here? Circumstantial evidence. No way. No way to explain this any other way. Circumstantial evidence. She never saw the body. You will never see the body. The body was buried far from here. All you have is the passport sent to you evidently by the police, by, by, by the local city authority. The passport is his. The signs in the passport, the letter tells you that this is the type of body we found. There was a body that evidently during its lifetime was 5'8". It was a body, the eyes were hazel, the hair was brown. Kareach. Bald. Everything agreed with the signs in the passport. Rabbi Yitzchokhanan is Matir. The passport, you don't lend it out. No one is going to borrow it from you. And although all we have besides the passport are the Simanim Gruim, but nevertheless, there are not Simanim Gruim that it joins together to form two Bainanayim, two Bainanayim may be one Mufak, together with the passport, Kizmata Lahalacha Hulamaisa. Tremendous. You have to have a backbone. This, uh, a young rabbi can't do. A young Talmud Chacham can't do. But this was Rabbi Yitzchokhanan. And he was Matir. Lahalacha Ulamaisa. What a story. Let me do one more example. Now you start to understand. You start to understand why he was called Avi Agunat. Remember what I told you when Rabbi Yitzchokhanan died? Rav Tzayir uh, Chernowitz Talmud Mufak, Rabbi Tzachanan, among his Talmudim. You see, he also didn't succeed with all his Talmudim. I told you, in modern times, Rav, Rav Tzayir became a, uh, a great researcher of Halacha, told that to Halacha, but already scientific. Later in his life, he taught in the Reform Seminary. Of course, the Reform Movement was different then. It's, it's a different ballpark. But no one succeeds with all that Talmudim. At Hebrew Union College, you had literature Ga'inim have taught there. Shmuel Atlas, Shmuel Atlas was a childhood chavruta of the Sri Dayesh. Where did, where did Professor Atlas teach? Hebrew Union College. It's an amazing thing. And then the Sri Dayesh and of Shmuel Atlas, Atlas remained good friends, corresponded. When, when, when students of, of Atlas visited Switzerland, he told them, drop in the Sri Dayesh. The Sri Dayesh had heart failure. He remembered of Shmuel Atlas, a tzaddik, a lamdan. Then he met his students, Reform rabbis out of the 1950s. It was a big, a big shock for the three day age to see what Atlas was teaching. But, uh, you don't succeed with all. That's why I don't get overwhelmed when you tell me Lakewood has made mistakes, Mayu has made mistakes, Chabad has made mistakes, believe me, Zatna has made mistakes right down the line. And, uh, but Rav Tzahir, when he began the eulogy, daughters of Israel, Cry for the death of Rabbi Yitzchokhanan. He was your father. 
He was Aviagunatan. That eulogy, more than any other eulogy, said for Bishochanan, carried the day. That was the one most widely quoted, the one that was most apt, the one that hit the nail on the head. And here we have the Ein Yitzchak. This already is next to his last sefer. The Ein Yitzchak Chelik Aleph. He had two Ein Yitzchaks. There was Be Yitzchak, the Nachal Yitzchak Chelik Aleph, Chelik Bet. Then the Ein Yitzchak Chelik Aleph, Chelik Bet. Chelik Bet was was published, I think, a, literally a year before he died, months before he died. And we're dealing here Ein Yitzchak Chelik Ebenezer Siman Chaf. And it's a very detailed question. Um, sh- uh, a woman turns to him in a guna. Her husband, you have the exact name, Shmuel, the son of Moshe, Epstein. And this man uh, was missing from the last Chodesh Macheshman. Where was he? He had gone to cure himself from mental illness. Amazing. Tell me, do we have less mental illness today? It's an interesting question. I have a feeling we have less mental illness today because we have more outlets today. See, life today is so varied that more or less there's so many outlets, legitimate and illegitimate, available to the person that he doesn't explode. I believe life 100, 150 years ago, even 50 years ago, you were much more fenced in. There were a lot less outlets. I may be wrong, but I don't think we see so much, so much mental illness day as you find in response to literature, or as I remember growing up, there were always people having nervous breakdowns and being institutionalized and the shock therapy. And I don't know, maybe I'm too optimistic, but I think today we have less. And there may be reasons why. It's, it's, that's, that's why I always say it's very healthy for a Rebbe to encourage a student to go his way, not to force the student into a straitjacket. Because when you force the student and he's not what he really is, at a certain point he will explode and walk away. Give him room. Let him breathe. A lot of choice. Have confidence that you've given him the basis that he's going to stay within the parameters. Halavai, you should be successful 90% of the time. But the other alternative is much worse, in my opinion. But here it's interesting. The guy, And he went, I don't know what this means. He went to the Tata. Maybe these were witch doctors, hoodoos specialized, they help you. Maybe it's like Buddhism today in Israel, there's a whole movement underway in which Orthodox people are involved with, with, with taking out of the gurus and meditation and, and you're the master of your emotions and you think and you contemplate. There's a whole group that have in Sfat. I couldn't believe what I was reading and I know someone who's involved with it, someone I know up close. He says, no, I daven, I don't miss davening, I'm from and everything. This is in addition. This is in addition. All right, I don't know. I don't. Uh, I know what this person has gone through, and I and, and I say, uh, a rabbi, this rabbi from the old country, the bedouin, said a tragedy. I said it's not a tragedy. At least, no, the rabbi may be right. I may be wrong. Could be my open-mindedness is tripping me up here. But the description is fascinating. 
went to a Tatar, Malon and Ikra Sarach Tata, and afterwards he disappeared from this, let's call it Tata mental health institution. He disappeared. And there was a river nearby. And there was a room where the guy jumped. No one found the body. And before Chagashvuat, this past Chagashvuat, the man disappeared already, Cheshvan. Think what I'm telling you. When Cheshvan would take us back to last November. And now, right before Chagashvuat in May, the rumor went out in Vuna that they found the body floating into the river, floating in the river next to that hotel, the Tartar Hotel, the place for mental illness right near the path where they saw this man wandering the last time, and when they fished the body out, they found the body dressed in exactly the clothes our late friend Shmuel Epstein was wearing, and he had on an Abba Comfort with Sitzit, and they found on him a Bichel Echad. Anyone know what a Bichel is? How would you translate it into English? A diary, a yoman. That's a bichel. It's a bichel with many letters in there. And they found the key of his, what we would call today his safe. And, and, and they found a, a little ring to which this key which is, was attached. And this was known to be his ring. And all these letters were found were written to the man. Who was the addressee? Shmuel Epstein. And they found the letter from his wife in her handwriting. And they found a letter from his brother-in-law. And they found his business cards, what you call a katispikur in Hebrew. I think in English we call it a business card, not a visiting card. But in Hebrew it's called a katispikur with his name and in, in written in, in German. In other words, Dishmuel Epstein might have been a businessman. And, and he had a card written in, not just in Yiddish, not just in Hebrew, but written Biktav Ashkenazi. Alright, this is really something. The old and the spinkers, they found in his handwriting, cheshbonot, money that he had in the house, money that he owed, and, and they absolutely know that this was his handwriting. Outside of that, there was no way to identify the body. The body had rotted away in the water, maybe the fish ate the face, was gone. There was no way you could recognize the face. And one individual who know him, knew him said that according to the height and way this body was built, he was positive that this was Shmuel Epstein. And when they buried him, they found on his shirt and on his pants his name Shmuel Epstein. Like a kid going to camp. What does a mother do before a kid goes to camp? She sits and works and puts your name in. You all know kids go to camp, what they lose, what is taken away, what is stolen. You got to know it's yours. And they found his name. And the hair, remember, as I told you, no matter how much the body decomposes, the hair remains intact. The hair was black. And around his navel button, they found he was very hairy exactly the way his wife described him. And not only that, 
around his neck and boy this takes us into contemporary Israeli politics around his neck the Kamiya the amulet this great witch doctor this Tatar expert gave him this amulet to heal him and they turned to me and asked me if we can be Matir Disaguna on the basis of the body they found. So again, it's an amazing story. There is practically no Simon Mufak, none at all. The body, so what? He had hair in his chest. Most men have hair in their chest. He was tall, he was this built, that built, but nothing outstanding about him. But there were other simanim. His clothes. The abacanfis. The name on the clothes. The passbooks. The banking, what we would call bank passbooks. His kajbanat. His yoman. Letters. All that we've described. And Rabbi Zalchanan says, it could be, it's all Simonim Gruim. Why? It's so, so smart, so insightful. No, Natanel's got reaction. A, a Yoman, personal letters, an amulet. But the man was crazy. Maybe he gave it to someone else to wear. Let him borrow it. I can still remember in the shul I grew up, I still can't understand it until today I'm haunted by this sight. Shabbos morning, overall I told you, in Shabbos morning in shul you didn't find anyone above 13 or below 70 at the later minion. Everyone who had a psychotic button at the early minion and went to work. But here you had men. Men davening. And suddenly the Balkore didn't feel well. These are all old-time European people. Someone else had to read from the Torah. And I saw it in my own eyes. And I only get up to read. Can I borrow somebody's glasses? And people would lend glasses. Take someone's glasses. Go and read as if nothing happened. Never understood it. I still don't understand it. But here, he says, the man was crazy. Maybe he lent out the glasses. Maybe someone borrowed it. Maybe he gave out the, 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 his yoman, the letters, the, the, his clothes, his sitzit, even the amulet. But Zohanan says, no matter how much you're going to worry about lending, he's not normal. But he says one thing is for certain. We have endless simonim here, which normally would be simonim of hakam. Simanim bein only him. No one lends out clothes, name on it, apacanthus, lend out everything. No one certainly lends out a yoman. No one gives someone else his personal letters. Allah if the Tara made a kamiya for you, you're not going to give it to someone else? So with all that we have here, he says, even if we consider them Simanim Gruim. But he says, with all our fear, with all our worry, 
Where all that were concerned, the man was mishugah. The he'll put it on someone else. Man is crazy. Can't depend upon. But he says, nevertheless, it certainly is equal to a semen garua. And all that we speak about the clothes, it's certainly not worse than a semen garua. All that we speak about the hair and the man's chest, it's all a semen garua. He says, there's so many simanim garuim here, there's enough already to turn it into one simen mufak. And there's enough to be matir. And putting it all together, all the circumstantial evidence, the body, the clothes, the abacomphus, the yoman, the letters, the cheshbonot, the key, he says, you have to be awfully crazy to lend out a key to your vault. Even a crazy person doesn't do this. And this man was a businessman, all right? He had mental problems, the pressures of life. There are many businessmen who crack up. It happens. The pressures, we can understand it. But nevertheless, with all the difficulties of life, a businessman still retains some business sense. The key. And he says, with all the Siman Groom, even if you want to call them Siman Groom, although if you would take it logically, each one is a Siman Mufak. No one is going to lend out a Yoman. No one's going to lend out a key to his vault. No one's going to lend out his calling card. No one's going to lend out uh, personal letters. No one's going to lend out Cheshbonet that he made, bank accounts, people owing money, money that he owes. There's something that's yours that has no interest to anyone else. But even if because you think the person is is not mentally there and can do crazy things, this is why he's a Meshuggah, this is why he's with the Tata, this is why he took the Kamiya. Nevertheless, there are Matsiman Garum Darat Bainunim, Bainunim into Mufakim. And he says, I am Matir, this woman. But at the end of the Kuntris, he says something unbelievable. He says, but I not only wrote out this long contest to me, Mate, this individual woman, but I wrote it out that in the future, that if there'll be other cases like this, I want the Rabbanim to know how to treat it, how to understand it, how to analyze it, and how to put it into a lachic framework. And Rabbi Yitzchak writes this out, but Pemalei, black and white. And this is why I said to you many months ago, that he just was not there on the 200 Agunat. But his Hatterim became the basis to be not there tens of thousands of Agunat. And Rabbi Yitzchak didn't shrink from the responsibility. He understood, I am creating new pathways, new understanding, new guidelines. And he put in this tremendous effort to write out Shuvat down to the end to explain his thinking, to explain his approach, to explain his psak. He would be precedent-making, but he wasn't only thinking of the Agunim in front of him, of the Mrs. Epstein in front of him, but of hundreds of other Mrs. Epstein's or Mrs. Robinson's that would come along in the course of the century. And this is why we call him the Avi Hagunat. All right, so I want to reiterate. 
today's shir, we basically devoted the shir the Nolda Yehuda, from the Nolda Yehuda to Rabbi Yitzchokhan Inspector, we saw four tremendous different shivat. The underlying theme that what you're involved with here is detective work. Circumstantial evidence. You're never going to be sure. You never can be positive. But when all the circumstantial evidence comes together, you should be matir. You have to stand firm, take the step. Rabbi Tholchanan here was the greatest innovator in the sense that he was the one to spell out that don't dismiss the Simanim Gruim. Just as the Bainoniyim or the Yimtzayim add up, the Gruim can add up. And when you have so much circumstantial evidence, even though each individual case, perhaps it will not be enough, but when you put it all together, you can be matter the Isha. And these are the cases we saw. It's fascinating. It's sad, but fascinating. People committing suicide. Jews that are cracking up. Mishugayim. The Tatar. Whatever that means is beyond my total comprehension. But the Kamiya, right in with modern times, nothing has changed. But this was a personal Kamiya. It's not like what Shas or Guruji Israel have distributed in this election. Those were impersonal Kamiya. This is a personal Kamiya with your name. And yet, he's crazy. Maybe he gave it to someone else. But with so much circumstantial evidence, you can be Matya. The passport internal passport, fascinating document, the identity, before photography, the description, think for a minute what I'm telling you, how did they know you were you? And there had to be endless your height and weight and eyes and color of hair and any other identifying features. Of course, I don't think on a passport you wrote that you had a warp in your stomach, but if you had a birthmark on your face, that certainly was a major identifying feature. And the person issuing the passport would look at you and write it down. And all this comes to the fore in response to literature. We're still not out of the woods. We'll pick up just where we left off and see Rebbe Tzalchana next week, continuing on this theme and then coming into photography. Mamish, modern life starts developing before our eyes. But with all that we'll see, Time and again, it's Rabbi Yitzchokhan Inspector Aviagunat who carries the ball, runs with the ball, carries the flag ahead of the crowd, precedent-making, and with full understanding of his responsibilities. That's what's amazing how he closes off. He says, I'm not just writing it for this case, but I'm writing it for any other cases that may come up like this so that Rabbanim will know how to handle it, what to look for, how to characterize it, and how to paskin. My dear friends, Be'ezrat Hashem, tomorrow I wouldn't miss, we reach the Rav at his heights, which Shlichat Adam. It's magnificent. And then, after I finish with the, the Shir and the Rav, I want to come back to the Ada conference. I call it Ada number two, and I want to respond to some of the literature that has reached me, including what I view as a brutal attack
on what I have given my life for and have paved the way and played a little role in changing the course of modern Torah history and there is a da ripping me to shreds to be dealt with tomorrow morning. Nathaniel, you have one job tonight. Daniel Yauka, dead or alive. And find out whether he followed through with the tapes because I gave the word. And that much that's listen to me. It's my voice on the tapes. To be made available to the members of the Kolel at cost. No profit. Nobody profits off my students. Five shekel a tape. Ten shekel, two hours and 22 minutes of Anrak Kefet eulogizing Joseph Paul DiMaggio. I can't think of a better bargain in the world. In the, outside of the two volumes on Brisk, that cost me 85 shekel in Weiss's bookstore in Zichamosha. In doing it again, in health and happiness, Pasvedanya. Thank you very, very much. Thank you very much. Uh, Algian Frito. Algian is a legendary name. Five foot six, Algian Frito.